0: Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. A couple of episodes back, we spoke about the Golden Rule, and this was a very interesting subject in my opinion, and especially in connection with how Bitcoin enforces the Golden Rule. And just to review, the Golden Rule, as it has been so named by people, and it's widely known outside of Christian circles, is... The rule that Jesus gave for how we should treat each other, and that is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. After preaching a sermon about how to relate to others, Jesus brings it together and says, Therefore, all things that whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And we spoke a lot about that. And I encourage you to listen to that episode because it draws a lot of valuable insight into that expression. But there's something that in the context of Bitcoin... I failed to mention in that episode, which is very important, I think. And so before we get any further along in other topics, I want to go back to that and just share that with you. Even if it's not coming in the right episode, so to speak, it really belongs with that topic of the golden rule. And when we spoke about the golden rule, we noted that it's called the golden rule because people have found value in it. They have found it to be valuable, this counsel to treat others as you would like others to treat you. And we explored how Bitcoin teaches or rather brings that rule into reality. In other words, by using Bitcoin as a monetary system, Bitcoin itself, enforces equality. It treats everybody equal. It's open to all classes. It is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of money. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of influence or a little bit of influence. It allows everybody to transact on an equal playing field. And that is how we all want to be treated. We want to be treated fairly. And in today's world, as things have morphed into the way that the world exists today, there are many inequalities in the financial system, in the banking system, in the money markets, in the investment realms, in all these areas of the financial world. There are gross inequalities. And we mentioned, for example, the fact that governments and people in power that are not even necessarily elected have the privilege of printing money, which has the effect of inflating the money supply and devaluing the currency in the pockets of the average person. And that's unfair, Because the average person is at the disadvantage. They don't have the power to print money. They don't have the power to increase their money supply. But yet others have that power. And so it's unequal. It's not practicing the principle of the golden rule which Jesus taught. To do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. So... The powers that are in control of the monetary system, they do not do unto others as they would like done unto them. They receive value and power and money through an unfair advantage, but those who are on the other side of the equation are then at a disadvantage. Now, what Bitcoin does is not just level that playing field by having a fixed monetary supply that cannot be inflated by political or financial powerhouses. That's one way that it levels the playing field. But it does even more than that. The banking system grew out of the fact that in times past, gold was much more important as a store of value than it is today. And gold, being a physical thing, requires physical protection. And so it was the case that one who had a lot of gold needed to have a lot of physical protection for that gold. And that meant personnel, that meant basically having a large family or corporation of people, a body of people, maybe even a small militia that was able to defend the physical property that is gold. And you can see examples of this even in the Bible where Abraham, for example, who was a very wealthy man, had not only livestock and other things of value, but he also had gold and silver. And there was a time when, for example, the kings of the cities around were attacked, and he went and he took his whole militia, everyone in his influence, and he armed them and went out and uh, fought against those kings and brought back the people who had been taken from the city. And so that's just an example of how wealth in the old times, was very much connected to physical protection. You needed physical protection proportional to the wealth that you had because the wealth was in a physical form. Whether it be livestock that had to be protected from thieves, or whether it would be gold that had to be uh, protected. Oftentimes it was buried in an undisclosed location so that others would not know where it is. And uh, then again, uh, that land where that gold is buried had to be protected so that uh, one would not lose control of that location where their wealth was stored. And in the modern world, this has become much more difficult because wealth is not necessarily held by people who have the same proportion of physical influence or physical power to protect that wealth. And so, for example, a wealthy individual might not have the physical resources to protect a large amount of gold. So, Instead, what has developed over the centuries, over, you know, the millennia, is a system of banking where a person, an individual, can register their gold with the bank. And the bank has the resources to protect that gold. And, uh, you know, many depositors bring their gold together and the bank then protects all of that gold uh, with the same physical resources with the same secret codes and armed guards and you know things of that nature and in that way it's more efficient for the gold to be protected but this comes with the compromise of the owner of the gold no longer has direct access to his own property and up until the gold standard was abandoned not so long ago, this was the model for the way that the banks operated. And they would keep the gold, the thing of true value, physical value that would secure the loans that they would make, the IOUs, the debt that they would issue in the form of dollars or any other currency. And that's how the system operated. And you could always take that IOU back to the bank and get your actual gold as an asset. But after the gold standard was abandoned, then the situation changed and the banks got another level of power that they didn't have before. Before, they had custody of the assets, but today they have not only custody, but ownership of the assets as well. And Essentially, what that means is that it's their right, it's their decision whether or not to allow you access to money. And this has come about sort of as an outgrowth of the fact that money has been or debt has been issued so freely to the point that it's essentially not backed by physical assets anymore. And so this is all, of course, an oversimplification, and I'm not a financial expert to really dive into the details, and that's not what I want to do here. What I want to do is show, in general, how the system works so that we can make a comparison with how Bitcoin actually brings back the golden rule. So today, banks take a whole lot more advantage over the depositor's money than in times past, to the point where there is so much a laxity in the rules as to how the money is allowed to be lent that, in effect, it's not secured by anything concrete. And this leads to, basically, a situation where the entire world is riding on the faith of a monetary system that is essentially a house of cards it's there's no real concrete structure to it that keeps it going it's been gutted of its strength and this all sort of revolves around the fact that banks are able to take deposits of some form not necessarily gold not necessarily money They take deposits in many different forms to secure debt, which they then issue as dollars into the economy. And this privilege that banks have under current government regulations is something that only the privileged have. The individual person does not have that kind of power. Of course, in an informal way, a person can give a valuable possession to a friend and say hey listen i need money can you keep this thing of value in your possession and exchange give me the money until i can pay you back and then redeem that thing of value this is this can be done on an individual basis and there are even you know stores that do this for you pawn shops as they are called where you can bring items of value and receive money for them. And then you bring the money back and receive your item back. And uh, of course, in the process, you pay a certain percentage to the pawn shop. And uh, that's how they make their money. That's how they run their business. And on the other hand, your benefit is that you receive a loan. And this is essentially what banks do. This is their business you deposit money in the bank, they take advantage of that money to invest it and earn from it just as the pawn shop secures the loan with the thing that you brought. And later, you know, if you do not pay, they will sell the item probably for a higher price and earn money on it. And so that's essentially the model for how banks work. And pawn shops are subject to basically the same rules as banks, in the sense that they are obliged to verify the identity of their customers, and they are restricted from discrimination and other things, just as uh, other businesses are. So essentially, it is the same model. But the difference between pawn shops and banks, even though they follow a similar model, is the fact that a pawn shop can't loan money that doesn't exist. Every loan that is made by the pawn shop is secured ultimately by the business through the things, the valuable items that it receives from its customers and whatever financial resources that it has from doing its business. So in contrast, banks and people high up in the financial system have this privilege of making monetary policies that allow money to be created debt essentially to be issued through mechanisms that have no tangible security and you know the examples of that abound with COVID and things like that, serving as justification for printing more money. And that's money that has no backing. There's nothing securing that money. In fact, it's actually the opposite of money that is backed in the sense that printing money in a time of crisis is actually a double whammy because society is slammed on the one side because of the crisis, and on the other side, debt is being issued without backing. So it's double bad. Not to mention the other effects that it has of redistributing wealth, taking it from the poor and putting it through the channels of the rich, particularly of those who are following the agenda of the people who pull the strings of the powerful. This form of corruption is, is something that, it's a power that is only in the hands of some few. And that's not according to the golden rule because they are treating others not in the way they want to be treated. Okay, They want to have all these benefits and advantages and power, but in what they do, in the way that they do things, they are actually treating the general public in exactly the opposite way, by taking away power from them, taking away wealth from them by force. So it's a blatant disregard for the golden rule. Now, what Bitcoin does, we talked about how the hard money cap actually solves that problem and it takes away that power from those powerful few and makes a level playing field. Bitcoin is open to all, and everyone who participates in it has an equal opportunity to transact and is able to hold their wealth without it being stolen from them by force, unlike the way the existing fiat financial world works. Okay, so we, we covered that, but what I wanted to bring here is how It not only levels the playing field and limits the power of those few, but it also grants to every individual the power to be your own bank. Okay, so how does Bitcoin bring the golden rule to bear on this situation with banks? In the Bitcoin space, it's often heard that you can be your own bank. And essentially that refers to the fact that you can hold your own keys to your coins in your own possession. And this goes back to the way that gold was originally held. It was buried, for example, and the location of that gold was known only to its possessor. Similar in concept to the old pirate treasures that were hidden on a island somewhere in the sea and nobody knew where they were except the pirates. And they could go back and visit that island and retrieve their wealth anytime they wanted, but nobody else would know where it is and therefore they wouldn't be able to find it. Having the map to the hidden treasure is like having the key to your Bitcoin. So the fact that Bitcoin allows a person to hold a key that secures their own wealth obviates the need for a bank to secure the gold, so to speak. In the old system, people deposited their gold with the bank so that the bank could secure it for them. But today, holding a key is something so easy for any person to do that there's no longer a need to have your Bitcoin secured by any other party. You can simply secure it yourself by holding your own key. And in that sense, you can be your own bank. Now, that's one layer of how Bitcoin levels the playing field and makes it where this principle of treating others as you would like them to treat you comes into practice. Okay, the banks used to have an advantage that they could secure money, easily because they had the power and the wealth to do so. But the average person didn't have that. And that imbalance of power led ultimately to the system we have today, where the banks simply do what they want, print as much money as they want, unsecured, and they just, they get away with it because they have all the power. So that's one aspect. But before we move on to the next aspect, I want to dwell a little bit on the keys. When you hold Bitcoin... The key has the form of, for example, 256 bits of data, which should be random in order to be unguessable. Okay. And that already introduces a certain superiority in comparison to traditional ways of securing wealth. Bitcoin allows you to custody your wealth, kind of like defending your wealth in the old days. And you do that simply by holding your private key and keeping it secret. Only you have that private key, and that key is the only way to access your wealth. And therefore, you have the perfect ability to defend your wealth, and you don't need a militia, you don't need personnel, you don't need physical arms to defend your wealth when it's in the form of Bitcoin. All you need is to keep that private key. And this is really a fascinating subject, and we can go in many different directions with this. In fact, I think maybe we will. We'll spend some time on that in this episode, because I think it's an important topic, and more people really need to understand this. And I'm going to address this from a biblical perspective. I'm going to draw on the Bible for some of the conclusions that I make. But the principles themselves are just out there in the world in the context of Bitcoin, And that's kind of where I started with these things. And it all starts with the cryptography and the the basic principle of how keys in cryptography work. And there are many good educational resources on that. But just to put it in very simple terms, there's asymmetric encryption. And that just means that asymmetric means it's not the same on both sides. So one way of encrypting data is to have a shared key, a shared secret. And that secret is used to encrypt a message, and then you give it to the other party who who has that shared secret, and he's able to decrypt it. That's symmetric cryptography, because both sides have the same key. But this has disadvantages, in the sense that both parties have equal access to the key, And so it's not useful for protecting one's personal property, for example. If you want to encrypt a message and be the only one to have access to that, symmetric cryptography is not the way. Asymmetric cryptography, however, does allow that. And it's called asymmetric because the key, the secret, is different with each party. And so the way it works is that each party holds their own secret key. And then this secret key is used to generate a public key, okay? Which in Bitcoin is a little bit of a misnomer because your public key is not really something you want to make public when it comes to Bitcoin. When it comes to sending messages, then yes, you want it to be public. And I'll explain in a moment why that is. And so let's talk first about the messaging Scenario, And this is how messaging is done on the internet. When you use uh, HTTPS, for example, anytime you're dealing with encryption on the internet, sending encrypted emails, for example, this is always using asymmetric encryption where you hold a private key, perhaps handled by the software automatically, but under the hood, you hold a private key. From that private key is generated a public key. And that public key is given to the other party. So the other party has your public key, but not your private key. And in the same way, they have a private key, which you do not have. And from their own private key, they generate a public key, which they give to you. So each party has their own private key and the public key of the other recipient. And with these keys, you can do many interesting things. The basic way it works is that when a message is encrypted with the private key, it can be decrypted with the public key. And when it is encrypted with the public key, it can be decrypted only with the private key. And so just to use A and B, Alice and Bob, as the names of the participants, as is commonly done in the world of cryptography, let's just say Alice encrypts a message with her private key and sends that encrypted message to Bob, then Bob, with the public key of Alice, is able to decrypt that message and know of a certainty that it came from Alice and that its content was untampered with. So that's a very valuable thing. And then on the other hand, Bob can encrypt a message with Alice's public key and send that encrypted message back to Alice and Only Alice can decode that message because it's decodable only with her private key. And so this opens up the possibility for a couple of interesting things. One is that messages can be sent and known of a certainty that they originated with the person associated with that private key. So it's a proof of identity And in another way, it allows sending messages that can only be decrypted by the intended recipient. So it allows for private communication. So these two properties are what asymmetric encryption allow. And it all revolves around this notion of a key pair in which the individual holds a private key and keeps it secret and generates from that a public key that is shared as needed with others. I say as needed because now we come to how this applies to money and how this asymmetric encryption is used in Bitcoin. Basically, the concept is the same. The private key is what controls your money. That's your proof of identity. And without proving your identity... You cannot move your money on the blockchain. Just like how in sending messages, a message encrypted with your private key is guaranteed to have come from you because nobody else holds that private key. Everyone else can know your public key and verify the fact that that message did indeed come from you. All right. And so that property of asymmetric encryption is used in Bitcoin in order to. make it possible so that nobody can spend your coins except you. Only the one who holds the keys has the power to spend the coins associated with that key. Okay, so that's one property. Now, the other property of being able to send a message that's only decipherable by a particular person in order to have private communications, that property comes into play In the spending of funds so that when you spend money, you designate who that money is for. And only the recipient who has the private key to that wallet is able to do something with that money, is able to spend it in turn. And so those two properties of asymmetric encryption that allow proof of identity and secret communication... Those two properties manifest in Bitcoin to allow money to be controlled by oneself and directed to a specific party without anyone else being involved. And so security of your money on the Bitcoin blockchain is as simple as securing your private key. So let's talk a little bit about the nature of the key itself. In Bitcoin, the key is generally 256 bits of random data, and it's random so that it cannot be guessed. You could make a key out of any kind of predefined data as well, but it would not be effective because anything that is not random is susceptible in some degree to guessing. For example, it's the same logic behind choosing a good password You don't want to use your birthday or any kind of known information for a password because that would make it easy to guess. You wouldn't want to use a dictionary word for a password, for example, because there are only so many dictionary words and that would be a password that's easy to guess. And so for a good password, it should be random and have enough characters that are random to be difficult to guess. And for Bitcoin, that's 256 bits of random data. Now, we're going to come to a Bible verse in a moment, but interestingly, just from a technological perspective, people found it interesting and useful to express these 256 bits of random data in the form of words, okay? So, therefore, you typically hear about seed phrases, or seed words, these are your 256-bit key expressed in the form of words. And basically, it's just every so many bits is decoded into a one word out of a list of about a thousand words, and every so many bits then can be expressed as a different word from that list. And putting all those words together gives you the whole 256-bit key. Now, the interesting thing about using words is that words are inherently human in contrast to a machine format. And that's intentional so that these words, which represent your private key, can be recorded in a manner that is less susceptible to human error. If you try to transcribe a sequence of bits, it's very easy to make a mistake and then your key is invalid and it doesn't work. But when you have that key expressed in terms of words, even if you misspell a word, it's not difficult to figure out what word was actually meant. And ultimately, it makes the key a little bit more human-friendly and a little bit more safe in that sense. But what's highly interesting, I think, is that when it comes to protecting your private key, there are all kinds of ways to do it. On the most basic level, you can simply copy those words, but you have to be careful where you copy them to. So, for example, if you copy them to a file on your computer, if your computer is ever compromised by a virus, for example, that virus could scan your files for something that looks like a seed phrase and ultimately transmit that to a perpetrator who then steals your funds. So... Be careful where you store your key. And it's advisable not to store it in digital format on any kind of a device that's connected to the internet because of such a risk. At least when we're dealing with large amounts of money. okay. And whenever you talk about security of Bitcoin, you always have to keep that in mind. That the risk And the security measures should be proportional to the amount of funds, to the value that is being protected there. And so if you're dealing with a small amount of money, then it's not quite as critical to protect that money with the same level of security as you might with a larger sum. However, bear in mind that Bitcoin generally increases in value over time. And so what may not seem worthy of careful protection today might warrant it in the future. So always review your security protocols and update your security measures according to the circumstances. All right. So when we're dealing with protecting Bitcoin, protecting your private key, if you want to keep it absolutely secure then you don't want to store it in digital form anywhere that could be accessed by some kind of virus or something like that or malware of any kind even a device that's offline from the internet but perhaps has a file transferring mechanism through a usb port for example or something like that that could be a risk for exposing your private key. And so this is where hardware wallets come into the picture because they are designed to hold the private key in a way that is secure and that can't be extracted, you know, by any kind of online uh, software or whatever uh, but even then uh, there are degrees because of course you know some of them plug into the computer and then you access them through the software provided by the provider the manufacturer and uh, there's there are all kinds of possible susceptibilities there so choosing a hardware wallet of course me- needs to take those things into consideration now to be even safer what many people find Appropriate to do is to record the seed words, 12 to 24 words, on something like a piece of paper in concept. But paper, of course, is susceptible to water damage or fire. And so you really want it on something a little more permanent, a little more secure. And so people opt for metal, uh, such as, you know, steel, and they uh, literally etch or hammer the words into the steel. And in that way, they can preserve the seed words in a way that is pretty safe from fire or water damage in most cases. And then it just becomes a matter of keeping that in a safe place where nobody else will ever be able to lay eyes on it or direct a camera lens toward it. And that's important because if your seed phrase is ever caught on-camera anywhere. Even if that's not used currently, it could be exposed at some point in the future. I mean, like, you know, somebody reviewing footage from who knows where and, you know, stumbling across a private key or something in the footage, you know. You always have to think about what could happen in the future and how much money that wallet might contain in the future that might be of a value much greater than what it seems today. So, thinking about all these things and how to protect a private key, and particularly when you're dealing with personal funds, a person naturally comes up with the idea that the safest way to keep your seed words, which is your private key, is to simply memorize them. And in that way, nobody else has access to them. Those words are in your mind. And nobody knows that except you and God. You know, He's the only one who can read your thoughts. And this is particularly interesting in light of something that is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And I just want to read that verse for you right now. This is in Revelation chapter two in the letters to the churches. And We're going to look at verse 17, where it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, save he that receiveth it. Okay, and obviously the one who gives it, knows it as well. So it's a secret between you and the Lord. And that's kind of what makes it interesting to compare with a private key that you alone hold. In the Bible, it describes it as a name, a name written. So, you know, things are written in words usually. So that kind of fits the idea of a seed phrase, that it is written down, okay? And it's written in a permanent place. And we talked about how the seed phrase can be recorded on metal, and on some permanent substance. But this being that it's a name, it's described as a name in the Bible. A name in the Bible is symbolic of a person's character. Names often are used to describe a person. And God, in several instances in the Bible, gave a new name to certain individuals to signify a change in their character. And this is interesting in this context because it's speaking of a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And in terms of the monetary system of Bitcoin And the private key, every time you make a new wallet, you make a new private key. And we've talked in previous episodes about how Bitcoin serves as a mechanism for guiding a change of character because the values inherent in the system of Bitcoin are different than the values that are inherent in the fiat system. The most obvious, most commonly cited one is that Bitcoin helps you to think long term. It helps you to have a longer time horizon, whereas in the fiat mindset, a person naturally wants to spend as quickly as possible because the money will be worth less in the future. Bitcoin is the opposite. The longer you hold on to it, the more its value is likely to increase. And therefore, it directs the development of a person's character to be thinking much more long term instead of short term. And ultimately, the longest term thinking one can imagine is in the direction of eternal life, which is promised by God to those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and who walk in his ways and ultimately overcome sin. So the fact that the Bible describes a new name, which signifies a new character, fits very well with the nature of holding your private key. And actually, the character is also connected to one's identity. That's essentially what it means to have a name that describes your character. But it goes even deeper than that, because our identity, who we are, what we look like, how we behave, you know, our physical characteristics and even behavioral characteristics that are sort of connected to the way that we develop physically. There's so much in our identity that actually goes back to our genetic code. And so a person's name can signify or does signify not only his character, but through his characteristics, it also describes his identity in the most fundamental sense in reference to his DNA. And that's very interesting in the context of Bitcoin as well, because the private key is what defines The identity. This is true in all kinds of encrypted communications, not just Bitcoin. The private key is what proves your identity. If you sign a message with your private key, everyone can know, because they have your public key, they can know that the author of that message is the person who holds the private key that corresponds to the known public key. So in the real world, in the area of forensics, for example, we have, you know, of course, we all have a public identity. That's our name. that That's how we refer to ourselves publicly. But we also have private forms of identity, such as our fingerprints. They are unique to each individual. And generally speaking, nobody knows your fingerprint. But this can be used to verify your identity or to prove your identity. And investigators frequently use that technique, for example, to identify a thief who has left his fingerprints on glass or on any other surface. So in that way, the fingerprint, the the private key, so to speak, is used to identify a particular in this case, perpetrator, with a public identity, assuming that link can be established somehow through fingerprint databases and so forth. A similar method exists in which DNA can be used as the sort of private fingerprint, private identity, private key to identify an individual. This is used, for example, in identifying who the real parents are of a particular child, for example. And so, and again, the DNA is something that generally speaking is not known. It's private to the individual. In fact, an individual does not even know their own DNA, but they do have that private signature, if you will, that private code, that key that uniquely identifies them. So, it's highly interesting how this is described in this verse as a name which is a, which describes character and identity and which is given to each overcomer who enters the kingdom of God. And so in the context of Bitcoin, everyone who enters the kingdom of Bitcoin, so to speak, receives a private key, a name, which only he knows, it's between him and God, and which uniquely identifies him in the kingdom, in in the blockchain, and proves who he is when he uses that key to sign transactions. So it's a very fascinating connection. And interestingly, it's also connected in this verse to eating of the hidden manna And that refers to the manna that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant, hidden. But it also, you know, manna in general refers to what the children of Israel ate as they were traveling through the wilderness. And so it refers to how God miraculously provided food from heaven to sustain, to help carry the children of Israel through this time in the wilderness where obviously food provisions were scarce and there was not infrastructure of of, of a city or anything like that where the children of Israel could easily find food. And so that's very interesting in the context of Bitcoin as well, because Bitcoin is a system that, I mean, as a monetary system, ultimately it facilitates the provisioning of food, for people, right? As well as every other material need. And so that's very interesting that the verse even connects this secret name, this secret identity, with eating of the hidden manna, the sustenance from God given as a gift from heaven, which is Very much what Bitcoin is. And the fact that it mentions it as hidden manna is interesting as well because it's signifying the invisible nature of that food. When a person holds Bitcoin, it's invisible. Nobody can really see in any physical sense that Bitcoin. And therefore, the sustenance that is drawn from Bitcoin is also invisible. You can't tell where it comes from, kind of like the manna from heaven. It's like, well, where did it come from? Nobody can say. Therefore, they just say it's from heaven. It's given by God. The Bible doesn't actually describe that the manna came down from heaven in the literal sense, like rain or something. It actually describes it more like dew, something that formed on the ground, but yet it is understood as coming from God, coming from the heavenly realm, the realm of the spiritual things, the realm of the invisible things. And Jesus also described himself that way as the bread of life that came from heaven. In his sense, literally, but in a similar way, Jesus was not obviously from heaven. In other words, there was no spaceship that came in from outer space and landed and then outstepped Jesus. That's not how it happened. Now, you might think about the star over Jerusalem and things like that, but Jesus himself, in the way that he appeared to humanity, being born as a child, he didn't apparently come down from heaven like Superman, for example, but yet he explained and it is understood that he did literally come from heaven. And so Bitcoin is kind of the same way. It's a gift from God, I believe. And it is something in that sense that comes from heaven. But yet at the same time, it manifested in an entirely earthly way, being developed by Satoshi Nakamoto and sort of taking shape here on earth in a very ordinary way. And yet it is a gift from heaven. So I think this is all very fascinating. And now just to kind of bring this back around to the original point, we were talking about how Bitcoin levels the playing field and it allows you to be your own bank. And the first step in being your own bank is to have the key to the bank door or to the bank vault. Okay. And that's what the private key allows you to do. So that's in the most basic sense. But the next layer to that is the Lightning Network, which is a system built on top of Bitcoin that essentially allows you to lock coins on the blockchain in channels with a specific peer on the network. And... Between those two peers, money can be exchanged in a secure way that ensures that you can make transactions with this party, small transactions with very small fees that are not being recorded every time back to the universal blockchain. And that provides a number of efficiencies. First of all, it provides true parallelism in the sense that you can have Many independent lightning channels between independent parties. And once those channels are opened, any number of transactions can happen between those parties on those independent lightning channels without any kind of interference between them. And this allows an incredible amount of efficiency to be gained. And that allows Bitcoin to be utilized for small transactions With extremely small fees, essentially solving the scaling problem of Bitcoin. And I hate even calling it a scaling problem because Bitcoin's scaling problem is not actually a problem. It's a feature. And the way that Bitcoin has limited block space and therefore a limited number of transactions per unit time, that is actually a key feature that makes Bitcoin what it is. And other forks, other coins that don't have those same properties are inherently inferior. And so the Lightning Network working on top of Bitcoin to allow scaling to support instant local transactions at low cost is simply part of the overall system. It's like how banks traditionally would hold the gold, which is not practical for small transactions, and then they issue dollars or credit cards, which are much more convenient for small purchases in comparison to gold. And so in the same way, we have the Bitcoin blockchain, which serves the role of gold It's very efficient and effective for large sums, but it's a little bit slower and not practical for small transactions. And so you have these lightning nodes, which are comparable to banks, which lock that Bitcoin under a set of keys that the node operator holds, just like how the bank has its keys to its own vault, and then... Through the channels of that node, small transactions can be made at low cost and high speed. And so this brings us to the point that anyone can run a Lightning node. And a Lightning node is essentially a Bitcoin bank. And there's nothing stopping anyone from running a Lightning node, just as there's nothing stopping anyone from running a Bitcoin node. It's open source and available to all. And this gets particularly interesting when you start talking about systems that are built on top of the lightning network. In particular, there are accounting systems built on top of lightning that allow you to literally do like the bank does. You could, if you want, credit money to somebody's account that they didn't necessarily deposit or that you don't necessarily hold, just like how the bank issues credit that is unbacked. And that's not a recommended practice, obviously. But the point here is that the same power, the same privilege that banks have is now available to every person on the planet through Bitcoin. Anyone who runs their own Lightning Node and their own accounting system on top of it can be a bank and even print money that doesn't exist if they want. Ultimately, however, there will never be the same bailout problems that we have with the traditional banking system, because anyone who prints money that doesn't exist is ultimately going to pay the price, and those who invest in such a bank and lose their money ultimately face that loss. And so there's no bailout in the free sense. If there's a bailout, that hard money is going to have to come from somewhere. Somebody's got to pay some Bitcoin to redeem that debt. So what this does is it brings equality in the sense that it levels the playing field for everyone to participate equally in the financial system. But the good thing about it is that in the Bitcoin system, perfect justice will be executed. You can't have this endless money printing and these endless bailouts that exist in the fiat system. And ultimately, anyone who participates in that kind of bad practice will be punished and suffer the consequences. Because, let's face it, who's going to bail out anybody that commits that kind of fraud? Nobody. And also, on the other hand, It's customer beware that those who invest in any kind of a custodial Bitcoin bank type solution will have to make their own judgment call as to how much money they're willing to risk and how secure they think it will be in that particular bank, so-called. And just to kind of make this a little more concrete, we're speaking about real apps that you can download on your phone known as wallets and any custodial wallet is essentially that it's a bank it's promising you money that you I mean you deposit real money into it and then real bitcoin into it and then they promise you that that's available to spend anytime you want and you can generally do that and it generally works but as long as you don't have the keys they are the custodian they are the bank that is providing the service to you. And so Bitcoin levels the playing field. It makes it possible for anyone to be a bank, a Bitcoin bank. And in that way, you can see how it brings the golden rule into this aspect of life. It says to the bankers, it enforces, let's say, the golden rule upon the bankers. It says... Hey, bankers, if you want to be treated that way, then it's only fair that everyone is treated that way. And so, here it is. We now live in a world where, with Bitcoin, the golden rule is perfectly applied. Anyone can be their own bank, and of course can be a bank for others around them as well, starting, most logically, with their own family, and extending to their friends, and... However, the needs arise and this is possible in a completely private manner. It's all open source. It's available to all. And it just takes a little bit of technical knowledge, which is also widely available. So that whole topic of being your own bank is a very important point to mention in the context of the Golden Rule. And so that really should have been in the message about the golden rule. But I just wanted to share that with you anyway, so that you can uh, understand how the golden rule really takes shape in Bitcoin on multiple levels, not just in preventing money printing with Bitcoin, but also in allowing individuals to be their own bank just like the bankers and the fiat system. And so I guess just to kind of wrap this up, I I want to give a little bit of advice that when you are dealing with wallets and private keys and where you keep your Bitcoin, generally custodial wallets are very convenient and a fine tool, in my opinion, to use for daily transactions and things like that. And the point is just to only keep a small amount of money on custodial wallets that is proportional to what you're using, proportional to your need. And for long-term storage or for larger amounts, then you really want to make sure that you have custody of that Bitcoin by holding your own keys and keeping the Bitcoin in wallets that are controlled by your keys. So that's just a bit of advice. And then take adequate precautions to make sure that your keys don't get lost and that they are not susceptible to theft. So just keep those guidelines in mind and constantly review your security protocols around your bitcoin just as you would with holding actual money gold for example or uh, you know cash or anything of that nature you don't just leave your cash laying on the table where anybody can see it and walk by and you know pocket it right so you in the same way you keep your keys secret And you don't advertise, you know, how much Bitcoin you have or things of that nature. So once again, we see how Jesus, in this case in the book of Revelation, spoke about the kingdom of heaven in a way that really relates very much to Bitcoin. And in particular, in the way that the private key works. So I think that's very fascinating. And that's not the only way that Jesus... Sort of hinted at that principle. Another example comes from Matthew chapter 20, verse 15. And Jesus is describing in this parable, well, let me just read it. It starts in verse 1 For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. Okay, so. What is the kingdom of heaven like in this parable? It's like a householder. Okay, so that's key. We want to watch the householder and how he behaves, describes the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's the idea that Jesus is conveying with this parable. All right. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth and ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out, and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. So that's speaking of a recession, okay? No, nobody's hiring. So that kind of tells you, you know, towards the end of the day, that's kind of like we're at the end of time here when we see that there's a recession all over the world and nobody's hiring, okay? But somebody's hiring. This householder is hiring, and he saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, their wages, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour. And thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? So he was paying the wages that were agreed. Take that as thine, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. In other words, take what's yours, and be happy with it. I want to give this other person, who came late, the same amount as I gave to you. Verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I want with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. For many be called, but few chosen. So the point here really comes in verse 15, where he said, Is it not lawful for me to do what I want with what is my own? In other words, can't I spend my money how I want? And isn't that the principle that's so lacking in the fiat system today? The system has gotten to the point where you can't do what you want with your own money. If it's not in accordance with the bank's expectations, they freeze it. They hold your transaction. And they decide whether what you're doing is lawful or not, so to speak. But Jesus implies here that it is legal, it is lawful to do what you want with things that you own. And that kind of points to what we've been talking about in regards to the private key, that if you don't have the private key to your money, then in truth, you don't really own it. You've got it on loan to a custodian or whatever the case may be. And so, indirectly, Jesus is also saying here that you better make sure you really own the things that you own. Otherwise, you might not be able to do what you want with them. And so if you want to have money that you own, if you want to be able to do what you want with your money, then you need a type of money that you can actually own. You need a bearer asset. And that's what Bitcoin is. Of course, there are other bearer assets as well. But Bitcoin is the most convenient because of the way that you can guard it simply by guarding the private key. And that makes it accessible to everyone. Because, frankly, not everyone has the ability to guard gold, for example, or other possessions. But it is possible for anyone who has a working mind to guard intangible Bitcoin, as an intangible spiritual asset, one that has no physical material associated with it, but is purely spiritual, purely information, the keys to which you can store in your mind. That is the ultimate in self-responsibility and self-ownership. And remember how this parable started with Jesus explicitly stating that the kingdom of heaven is like this householder who uttered these words, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And when you find a monetary system that encompasses that principle in its very nature, in an inviolable way, in a way that ensures, according to the laws of the system, that you are free to do what you want with what you possess, then you know that that system is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Logic dictates that if the kingdom of heaven is like this householder who uttered these words and Bitcoin fulfills these words, then the kingdom of heaven is like Bitcoin. That's just simple logic. And if Jesus' purpose was to teach the people about the nature of the kingdom of heaven, To educate them on spiritual things, then it stands to reason that studying Bitcoin is also a way to learn more about the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we try to do with this podcast. In the same way that, as we read in Revelation, eating of the manna was connected with receiving a private key. So it's not only learning about Bitcoin, but it's also entering into the kingdom receiving that key, having the key to the kingdom of Bitcoin, and practicing using Bitcoin as a money in your daily life. This is all connected with preparing for the kingdom of heaven, where one day you hope to receive the key, so to speak, to enter therein. And that key, of course, is Jesus Christ. The same one who uttered this parable and tried to show you what the kingdom of heaven is like by comparing it to things that are much like Bitcoin. And again, just for emphasis, notice that this parable is specifically about money. It's about wages. It's about this penny, this satoshi that the workers earned. So, alright. So, that's been on my mind this week to share with you and so I just wish you all a good new week. And I hope that this topic was really a blessing. Like I said, it's been on my mind this week. And I'm happy to be able to share that with you. And I think it was important. And especially as I work with people to introduce them to Bitcoin, it's important to understand these basic Concepts around the private key. And so I hope that that information is useful to some in a practical way as well. So, as always, I just want to ask you to share this podcast if it has been a blessing to you. And just a reminder, you can find me on Noster at Bitcoin Sermons or just search for Bitcoin Sermons and you can find me on Fountain or any other podcasting app or go directly to the host at bitcoinsermons.substack.com and you may write to me at bitcoinsermons.substack.com or via Noster. Your support in any form is appreciated and I hope that this episode has been a blessing to you and I encourage you to check out my other episodes in case there are topics that are of particular interest. And if you think this podcast has value, please consider supporting it in a meaningful way. God be with you, have a blessed week, and I'll talk to you next time.